You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome. Welcome tonight for our our next session in the book of Judges. And uh, it's good to see everyone here in person and online. And uh, this week is going to be fun. Uh, Last week was fun. Every week is fun in the book of Judges. (laughs) But uh, last week, we, uh, we looked at the first judge. What was his name? Anybody remember? Othniel, yeah. Or Neil, as we we're going to call him. Yeah, Othniel. And uh, Othniel, um, you know, interesting story. Um, he's, he's an ideal judge. Uh, but the story of Othniel kind of lacked detail. And uh, not so this week with our story of a guy named Ehud. Uh, With the story of Ehud, we get all the drama and details of an HBO special. Uh, We get a different kind of judge. Uh, Othniel was the high standard of judges. He was upright. Uh, He depended on uh, God for his victory over Cushan, the doubly wicked, right? Remember him? But in Ehud, we get a different personality. Ehud is a tricky assassin who along the way was chosen by God to rescue Israel. And the story, as we look at it tonight, it is disturbing. If you haven't read it, or even if you read it, I mean, you'll recognize it is a disturbing story because it's very violent. Uh, But as I said before, to be disturbed is not necessarily a bad thing. And the other thing is we shouldn't be surprised with violence. Um, Evil leads to violence, typically. But the challenge that we have with Ehud is that uh, he's a leader that God raises and God uses. But as a leader, he's a bit deceptive. He's a bit devious. He's a bit tricky. And the thing is, from Ehud onwards, all the judges that we're going to come across uh, tend to get worse, right? Tend to get worse. Uh, Maybe next week. Next week, it's probably on the same part as as Ehud. They all have kind of questionable and declining integrity and morals. And the other thing about Ehud that uh, makes it a little uncomfortable is that uh, there's times in the story of Ehud that um, you find yourself, or maybe I'm to speak for myself, I find myself laughing or chuckling a little bit. Um, it's kind of dark humor, but it's kind of funny at times. It's kind of like when I was watching Deadpool with my son. It's like, there's times like, I don't think I should be laughing at this, but we were laughing at it. So, but don't watch Deadpool. <laughs> but let's look at the story of Ehud. Ehud is found in uh, Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. So if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 12, and we'll read the story of Ehud. You ready? Okay, here we go. You guys ready? All right, and then the, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. Then they took possession of the city of Palm. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 
18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, so it's about 18 inches in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting him the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him, for he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. And he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Ugh. Then Ehud went out into the porch, and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet, in the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed, but they still did not open the doors of the roof chamber. They took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpets in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. And he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they, and they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Wow, let's, let's pray. Lord, this is your word. This is a word of God. And we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. So give us ears to hear from you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, how does our story begin? Well, it begins with an all-too-familiar refrain. And the people of Israel did what? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon the king, the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He says it twice. So the first thing we need to notice in this story is sin, is the presence of sin. And this is a refrain in the book of Judges. And I think I mentioned this last week. The danger is, is that every time we read this, we're like, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the problem is, is that you and I could grow numb to sin, to wickedness, to the point where it no longer bothers us. And, the, and yet this fact keeps showing up. It tells us some important things that we need to realize. First is this, is that sin, sin is Boring and monotonous. It happens again 
and again and again. And, and here's the thing. The ways you and I can sin are seldom very creative. I mean, when you hear stories of, of people sinning, um, you know, someone having an affair or someone lying or someone, you know, murder or whatever it happens to be, um, there's not a lot of creativity. Um, for Israel, it's a question of idolatry. It's, it's, it, for Israel, the issue is they find ultimate meaning in someone other than God, which is not unique. I mean, it goes right back to the garden. Every one of us, in, if you look at what's behind a lot of our sins, is, is idolatry. It's, it's finding meaning in someone other than God, ultimate meaning. The other thing about sin that we notice is this, is that sin is perverse. It doesn't make sense. I mean, God had rescued Israel. It rescued Israel through Othniel. And it had given them rest in the land for how many years? 40 years, right? 40 years. And in the face of God's grace, what do we do? We grow complacent. And we find ourselves doing things that we ought not to do. Or we don't do things that we ought to do. I was reading, um, I have this, um, this regular prayer, um, it's called the Divine Hours. It's like a, a, a set prayer that I do. And one of the prayers that I was reading every day last week went, went like this. I said, Lord, you are always more willing to listen than I am to pray. And that really convicted me. That God is always much more willing to listen then we are willing to pray. And at its core, what is at the core of sin as well is, is, is ingratitude towards God for all that he has done. In Romans 121, it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so sin is boring, sin is perverse. The other thing is sin is addictive. Like a dog to its vomit. Human beings return to their addiction readily. I was talking to uh, Pastor Brad, and we were talking about uh, some people that he knew who struggled with um, addiction, with drug addiction. And, then, and, and a lot of these guys, you know, Hope for Freedom uh, fellows, that uh, they broke free from addiction only to go back to their addiction. And uh, Brad asked one of the guys once, he goes, why, why? He says, you're... you're clean you were you broke free from all this stuff why would you go back and you know what example he gave he said the, the guy said this he says because when i was when i broke from my addiction he goes i felt clean and naked and he says my old addiction when i looked at it he goes it was kind of like is the kind of graphic language. He says, it's kind of like a warm bowl, a warm tub of excrement. He goes, it's, it's terrible, but it's warm, it's familiar. And this is, it, it, so even though I know it's bad, it's something that's familiar. And, and it's a picture, I mean, the thing about um, what it means to be human is that you and I, we're always prone to addiction. And some addictions are a little more pronounced than others. But every human being struggles with addiction. And sin, sin is addictive. It, it, we, we get drawn back into it again and again. This is what happens to Israel. 
And the last thing is this, is that sin is pervasive. Uh, the sinful actions of the Israelites seem to outnumber the times that they're walking with God. It's, it's, and I get that in my own life. You know, the times where I'm walking with God and the times when I'm walking with David, you know, doing my own thing. You know, they're not always equal. I tend to walk with my, do my, go my own way more often. So you get the consequences of sin. So, so we have sin in the story and then the consequences of sin. And what's the consequence of sin? What's the consequence of addiction? Slavery. Slavery. Eglon gathers to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and they went and they defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of the Palms, like, which is Jericho. And it says, the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And so we read that the consequences of sin is enslavement. We saw this last week with Cushan, right? The doubly wicked. <laughs> the consequences of sin is enslavement. Uh, we read that God strengthens this new king, a guy named Eglon, king of Moab. And him with, the, you know, with his cronies, with the, you know, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, they, they go up and they defeat Israel. And it's interesting because we need to see this because the consequences of sin in the story are both natural and supernatural, aren't they? Because you have this king, a guy named Eglon, you got the Amalekites, you got the Ammonites, you got the Moabites, and they all overpower Israel and they defeat Israel. So on one level, it says this natural powers that over, over, overcome another power, Israel. But we read behind the story because we're given insight that God is, God is the one who raised him up. God raises up Eglon as, as retribution against Israel, as a consequence for their sins. And so it's a reminder that when we sin, I mean, there's consequences to our sins, right? And it's not always easy to see what the if, if they're just natural consequences, right? Or where God is involved in it. And, and you guys remember when, remember way back, think way back, way back when the pandemic began. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of articles that were written about the pandemic and the judgment of God. Did you guys ever come across any of those? Yeah, you and I, were. you talked about a few of them. And there's a lot of articles saying, well, this is a judgment of God, which I think we always have to be careful because we're not all, it's not always easy to see which is where God is at work and where there's kind of natural consequences at work. In this case, we're given the insight. We're given the insight that God is at work. Now, from our side of things, we can use our challenges in the face of sin as opportunities to repent. And so we need to remember these two perspectives about sin and the consequences. So for Israel, the sins of Israel have consequences. And so what ends up happening? They serve Eglon for 18 years. Then what happens? Look at verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Now, we can't miss this. This is the theme that runs throughout the book of Judges. It's hard to see. I get it. But one of the key themes is grace. The people cried out. Did the people repent? Does it say they repented? No. They could have just been like, oh, I hate being a slave. This sucks. I hate it. 
That could be their cry for help. But God's grace always goes before them. God hears their yelp for help, <laughs> raises up a deliverer. And uh, who does he raise up? Ehud, the Benjaminite, the left-handed man. And it sounds familiar. God raises up someone to rescue his people uh, when his people cry out. But here's the thing. Not just in the book of Judges, but all throughout Scripture, whenever God raises up someone to rescue his people, it's always in a very creative way. And you think of Moses, and you think of the parting of the Red Sea, and the plagues, you think of Joshua, you think of Ehud, you think of David, you think of all the, you think of Jesus. When God raises up a deliverer to rescue his people, he does it in creative ways. And this is in such contrast to sin, because sin is monotonous and boring. There's only so many ways you can sin, and they all tend to kind of look the same. But the way God rescues us is always creative and always unique and always personal. And so uh, I want to give you guys an opportunity to do something. All the Zoom people get nervous. Oh, I hate Zoom breakouts. Well, deal with it. Zoom breakouts are fun. <laughs> They're sort of fun. Um, I'm going to break you guys into groups. But here's the question I want to ask you guys, okay? So this is going to be fun, really. Uh, here's the question. De de describe a time when God helped you. He delivered you, whatever you happen to be facing. And what I want you to notice is the creativity of God. Okay, so in your groups, I want you to just share a time of a time where, you know, God rescued you. It doesn't have to be, you know, the, oh, you know, your conversion story. It could be, uh, but you got to keep it short. Um, but I want you to just share a time where God, you're in, you're in a bind and God rescued you. Delivered you out whatever it happened to be. Okay. So you got to be concise. You can't say, you know, I was born at a young age and then tell your story. You know, you got to be concise, right? Because I'm going to break you into groups. So I'm going to spend a few minutes doing this. Now, in your awkward Zoom breakout groups, here's the thing. Just lean in and say, hey, let me tell you this time, okay? It, it'll be okay, really. So take a few minutes. I'm going to break into groups. Tell about a story where God rescued you. And, and then we'll just notice how creative God is. Sound good? We'll just do this for a few minutes. I'll give you a few minutes. All right, here we go. Okay, let's, uh, let's gather in. I see our Zoom friends are back. Way to be prompt. <laughs> you had no choice because <laughs> I have control. Um, okay, so let's have one Zoom person share very quickly of, uh, where God has been creative. Does anybody want to share? I'll turn you up. Anyone? You just got to mute, unmute yourself. So if you're talking and you're telling the story, but you're muted, it's going to be awkward. Um, anybody want to share? <laughs> okay, Naira, I see you. I saw Brian, but I think he's goofing around. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I just was uh, saying to Natalia, for me was, now I understand when we review these uh, verses, why God bring uh, knowing himself through a false teacher to me because I was almost atheist. I didn't believe any religious, but I got that Bible through my 
piano teacher. He was Armenian, Grigory actually. But after a while, I, after he died, I understand he, a lot of us, he was teaching about the book and church and around this one was false. But still, uh, I was asking why five years, 10 years, I have to go all these books through the false teaching. But you said God has a different way because maybe that there, was an, there wasn't another way he could teach me to come to me maybe. But that was one of the very strange way. He bring the yeah. Bible to me. Yeah. Book through somebody. Remind, he, yeah. It reminds me, um, and I think uh, maybe Denisa, you and I talked about this. Uh, there's a number of people I know in Eastern Europe who, who came to faith. They, there's two steps. They come to faith through Jehovah's Witnesses. They realize that this is kind of wonky, and then they come to Christianity. They come to Jesus. But the number of people I met who the first step is Jay. Were you telling me, Daniel, about that once? Oh, you had that, your own experience with that, yeah. Oh, I've heard a number of people who, because the JWs were quite prominent after the, the wall came down, after the Iron Curtain came down. And, uh, but a lot of people would hear about Jesus for the first time, and then they would come to Christ afterwards. So was that, was that your experience, Daniel? Well, I learned that in Germany. Somebody about the Jews, which is probably true. Oh, okay, interesting. Well, I mean, that's creative. I mean, that's just, it, it's interesting how, how God does that. Anybody else want to share? Okay, so that's Naira. We got your, anybody um, in, uh, oh, okay, I see Kevin. You go ahead. I hope, I hope one of our group members doesn't mind me sharing, but there's a guy called Jack, and uh, he was in a job that he hated, and God rescued him by, he got fired from his job, and then into a job for 20 years that he loved, and I just thought that was a pretty cool way to be rescued. So you're in a job you hate, God fires you from the job, and then gives you a job that you love for 20 years, so I thought that was awesome. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, very cool. Good. Any uh, embodied people here want to share? Now, come on, our Zoom people can't be more outgoing than, you know. I can share. <laughs> okay, wow, look at this, all right, go, go ahead. Uh, it's Natalia. I uh, was, uh, yeah, we were talking with um, Naira, and then I was saying there was not one event. There was just um, this feeling of uh, deep sorrow and brokenness through realization of you know how hard life became for me at some point that I realized how bad I was towards God and you know wanted to do something different mm -hmm. that's very it cool you know that's awesome yeah that's very good well did I ever tell you guys how um you guys know I used to smoke a lot back in the day uh, I was a heavy smoker. Uh, I smoked uh, at least a pack a day back in the, in the day. And then, then when I became a Christian, um, I still enjoyed smoking. Uh, like, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, because it's something I did. I, I really enjoyed smoking. I loved, even to this day, I smell a cigarette. Like, like I'm not one of those ex-smokers that, yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed it. 
But shortly after I became a Christian, I was down in Vietnam. I was staying with a friend of mine. And, um, and he said, well, do you want to keep smoking? And I'm like, yeah, I, I know I should probably quit, but I don't want to. <laughs> he said, I'll take your cigarettes. I'm like, no. I, you know, I, I, I still kind of want to s- smoke. But then I remember one night and I was praying. I said, Lord, and I prayed this before, but this time I actually really meant it from my heart. I'm like, Lord, I actually would like to quit smoking. I really would, but I can't because I like it too much. And so I need your power. I need you to help me quit smoking. And the next morning I woke up and um, I was sick as a dog. I, I, I'd gone biking the day before and it's in Vietnam. It's so hot and I got sunstroke. I don't know if you've ever had sunstroke. Like I was sick. I could, I was laid up in bed and the whole day, I went the whole day without smoking. And my buddy said, hey, you've gone the whole day without smoking. Should I take your cigarettes? I said, no, no, just leave them there. I said, but I went a whole day. And I'm like, never gone a whole day. So the next day, the second day, I felt better. And I'm like, oh, okay, I must. I'm going to try not to smoke, try not to smoke. I went out in the evening. I went out with some friends. We had a few drinks. And I'm like, yeah, I really want a cigarette. But I, I grinned. I said, no. No, but I knew that day three, I was going to be smoking again because it was so hard to get through day two. Day three, I woke up and I had food poisoning because we ate on the street the night before. And I was so sick. I was throwing up the whole day. And the last thing I wanted was a cigarette. And day four, I was free. And then I had a chance to go back to China. And when I went back to China, I bumped into an old friend of mine. As soon as he saw me, he pulls out a cigarette. He goes, ah, da go, you can have a cigarette, right? Right? And I'm like, no, man, I quit smoking. He's like, ah, oh, you're going to start smoking because, you know, that's what we always did and you don't stand a chance. And he says, tonight we're going out with a friend of ours. The girl we knew her name was, uh, yeah, doesn't matter what her name was, but we're going out for dinner. He goes, she smokes, I smoke. We're going to go for dinner. We're going to have some drinks. You're going to smoke. I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> That's probably who's going So we went out and we're having dinner and my friend's all smug and he pulls out his cigarettes and he looks at our friend and he goes, eh, Liu Mei Ling, ni chou have a cigarette. And she goes, no, I quit. <laughs> and so she had quit. And then, so we didn't smoke that night and then we're going to the airport and I didn't know when if I'd ever, he's a very close friend of mine. I didn't know when I'd see him again. And as we're heading to the airport, and we're in the cab, and I said to him, I said, you know what? I don't know when we're going to see each other again. I said, let's have one cigarette just for old time's sake. And he looked at me, he goes, nah. He goes, you quit. I'm not going to give it to you. And then since then, I never smoked. <laughs> I thought that was kind of a creative way for God to deliver me from, uh, from cigarettes. But the point is simply this, is that God is creative. He's creative. And how he delivers us is very creative. And how he delivers Israel in this story is very creative. And it centers around a most unlikely person, this guy named Ehud. Now, we get it. I understand why he chose Othniel, right? Othniel is associated with the tribe of ben, uh, Judah. He's a proven fighter. He married well, came from a good family. But Ehud, what do we know about Ehud? Well, we know he's a Benjaminite, okay, from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's the thing. The problem with Benjamin is they're not known for their fighting prowess. 
uh, we come across the tribe of Benjamin in chapter one. And they're supposed to fight and they fail in their attempt to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. We see that in chapter one, verse 21. So there, he doesn't come from like a stock of fighters, right? The other thing we learn about Ehud is that he's left-handed. And, you know, how many strong, dynamic leaders, other than David Wood, do you know, are le- <laughs> including David, are, are left-handed? And there aren't, I mean, well, and here's the thing. Within the context of the time, it's not that Ehud happened to be left-handed. What it most likely means is that there was something wrong with his right hand. He's probably lame or probably something amiss with his right arm, and so he's forced to be left-handed. There's a physical issue. And, so, and that's a problem because you're in a day where everything's right-handed. Um, well, it's the same today. I remember doing art and trying to find scissors. Anyhow, I'm okay now. Uh, but it was, a, it was a pain because you couldn't find left-handed scissors. Um, but everything was right-handed. The right arm was the sword-bearing arm, symbolized great strength. Think about uh, passages in the Bible in Psalm 16, verse 11. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The chosen one sits at the right hand, Psalm 110, verse 1. And so the right hand is a symbol of power, glory, blessing. But Ehud is left-handed. And he's from which tribe? And what does Benjamin mean? This is ironic. Does anybody know? The word Benjamin, the name Benjamin, Benjamin. you know what I mean? Son of means my right hand. Son of my right hand, yes, son of, son of the right hand. So you got a left-hander who's from the tribe of the son of my right hand. Right? That, was, that was an upgrade from son of my sorrows. That's right. Well, I guess, yeah. Well, it's interesting because this world, I mean, when, uh, when our family went to England, some of you guys, there, have you ever been to England you visit like an old castle? And you go up the stairs. Have you ever done that? The stairs are designed in a certain way. What are they? They're designed for right-handers. Yeah, because they go up like this. And so if you're right-handed and you're attacking, you're going up, your arm's against the wall, and so you don't have freedom. Whereas if you're defending and you're coming down the stairs, you get lots of room, right? So everything's designed for right-handers. And so here we have, we even read that the Lord stretched out his right hand to rescue Israel. And we read that he raises up this judge who cannot even use his right hand, but is left-handed. And we think, that's strange. Ehud is weak where a person ought to be strong. And everything in the story is unexpected and a bit strange. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. When people cry out, they raise up uh, Ehud. Um, what, what is Ehud? When, when we first encounter him, the people of Israel says this, the people of Israel sent tribute to him, sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So we encounter Ehud. The first time we encounter him, he's not doing a lot of fighting. What is he doing? He's a messenger. He's a messenger, Right. He is the one who's in charge of bringing the tribute to their enslaver, Eglon, to their Moabite captors. Now, why was Ehud chosen to bring the tribute? We don't know, 
We can speculate, maybe on appearance, he's not much of a security threat. If he's lame in his right arm and he's left-handed, he's not much of a security threat. He wouldn't be mistaken for a warrior. So Israel, get this, Israel chooses Ehud to do what? Simply to transport tribute, wealth, to Eglon. And in the story, you get the sense that Ehud was supposed to do nothing else but deliver the tribute. It's not like Israel saying, hey, Ehud, we got to... No, not at all. He's just supposed to deliver the stuff. That's all he's supposed to do. But Ehud th sees things differently, doesn't he? In fact, unbeknownst to Israel and unbeknownst to this Moabite king, Ehud sees he has an opportunity. He has an opportunity not only to enter into enemy territory, but also to enter into the presence of the tyrant himself. And so we read, he makes the most of his opportunity. What does he do? He takes a short blade, right? But 18 inches long. He straps it to his right thigh, right? So 18 inches, he could still move his leg. He could conceal it pretty well. Hides it under his clothes. Now, the fact that there's no other Israelite mentioned here seems to suggest that this entire plan is Ehud's plan. It's his, it's his plan. Nobody on either side knows what he's going to do. Only Ehud knows what he's going to do. He knows he's got one shot at this. One shot. And he better not blow it. And what I like about Ehud is that he's left-handed. Did I mention that? No. Um, no. What I like about Ehud is that he's got moxie. People still say moxie today? Um, <laughs> he's not only good at concealing his weapon, but he's good at concealing his purposes. And so he's sent on this, he goes on this unexpected mission. And so what's he doing? He's delivering tribute to Eglon, the Moabite. Now, what do we know about Eglon? He's fat. There's, uh, there's no uh, easy way to say it. But he is fat. And no, not only is he fat, how can I put it? He's very fat. He is very fat. And there's no political way to say it. You can't say he's big bone, stocky, healthy, right? He's, he's fat. Now, fatness can be a negative thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing, but it can be. In some cultures, to be fat is a symbol of power and success. I remember when I when I was working in Shanghai. Well, in Shanghai, when I was working for this company, every single night we went to Kalaoke's and we had banquets. And I was driven to work and back, to work and back. And I remember I went down to Kunming and uh, this one uh, girl that I knew, she saw me and she goes, wow, Wu Dawei, ni hao pong, you're really fat. And I'm like, what? But she meant it in a good sense because she said, oh, it sounds like you're doing really well. But after that, I just, I bought a bicycle. Um, in this case, Eglon, he's fat. Now, how does he get fat? How do you think he gets so fat? He eats too much. Where's he getting all the food? Getting it from Israel. Because Israel, the tribute, most likely, they're an agricultural nation. They're, they're giving him food. And so Israel's economy is largely agricultural. And uh, 
this is so Ehud is bringing lots of food, lots of food to the oppressors, to their oppressors, and Eglon, while well, he's grown fat on the food stolen from Israel. And in fact, Eglon has become a bit of a fattened calf, which is interesting. And this is where I love Hebrew wordplay. The word Eglon, do you know what it means? Fattened calf, basically. He becomes a, a fattened calf ready for slaughter. So Ehud is, is given permission to bring tribute to Eglon, who we're told is very fat. Now, what happens? After he delivers, he delivers the tribute. That's what he's supposed to do. He delivers it. No problem. And he goes and he leaves. And as he leaves, we read that he goes back and he, he um, as he, look at verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, king. Um, after, actually, look at verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carry the tribute. Okay, so he's on his way back and he tells the people who are carrying all the food, saying, hey, you guys, you guys go home. I'll meet you there. I'm just going to go back. So he leaves this kind of shrine area, this religious area, lots of idols, and he goes back and he sends message to Eglon. He says, Eglon, um, King Eglon, I, I, have a, I have a secret message for you. I have a secret message for you. Now, if you're Eglon, what are you thinking? Yeah, who knows? Like, I mean, Ehud is brilliant here because you see what he's done, eh? By coming, delivering everything, and leaving, he's shown himself, I'm not a threat. I've, I've, if I've come, I've delivered. You know, I only have my left hand. I've delivered. But hey, after I'm in the, this religious area, I send a message to the king, say, I have a secret message for you. Well, the king is like, oh, Eglon, or Ehud was in this religious area. Maybe he's heard a word, something special that I need to hear. Maybe, maybe, but it's a secret message. And so it could be uh, from Eglon's perspective. Because Eglon, once he hears, I have a secret message, he says, silence. And everybody, all of the people that were um, serving him, they all take that as an indicator to leave the room. Well, for Eglon, he obviously does not see Ehud as a threat because this poor, limp, left-handed person's already come and gone. But now he has a secret message for the king. Maybe, maybe he's got some inside information. Maybe there's a plot against him. Maybe there's this movement. Maybe this guy is hoping to, you know, grease his pawn to make a bit of money in order to, turn, to, to be a traitor against his people. But he's intrigued. But he's also thinking, well, maybe, maybe what he's going to get is a special word from God. And he doesn't want anyone else to hear it. Those details aren't given to us. But we know that Eglon is intrigued. And he takes a bait. And he orders his room, he looks around and he says, silence, the attendants hear this, and they take this as a dismissal, they leave the room. Now, Ehud has the enemy right where he wants him. And we read that Eglon, where is he sitting? He's sitting 
alone in his cool roof chamber. So he's got this special room on the roof where he can enjoy the breezes in an otherwise hot climate. And it, I mean, it's a fancy room, right? It's a fancy room. It's, it's actually, it actually has its own toilet, right? I mean, when you're fat, going up and down those stairs in the hot climate, I mean, that's a bit of a pain. And so he's got the room designed, so he even has a toilet. Who wants to go downstairs if you can remain? It's one of the benefits of being a king. And I like what Barry Webb, in, the, in his commentary on the book of Judges, what he says, he says, Eglon, quote, he says, Eglon is a complete tyrant. He's smug, self-satisfied, He's enjoying his ill-gotten gains, and he's sublimely confident that no one can touch him. And he's about to find out too late how wrong he is. Now, Ehud comes up to him, right? Eglon says, everybody out of the room? Ehud comes up to him, he goes, I have a message from God for you. Well, now Eglon's suspicion is right that this person, because he was in kind of this religious area, has probably an oracle, a word from God that is for him. And so how do you receive? How do you receive an oracle from God? Do you, do you receive that sitting down? Of course not. And so we read that Eglon stands up. Let me receive the word from, the, from God. But in standing up, what does he expose? His big belly, right? It's perfect. And the next part has so much detail in it that if it were a movie, it would be in slow motion, right? Because you get Ehud. He reaches down and he pulls out his sword. And, you know, the king is still with his eyes closed. And Ehud just takes the sword and it goes in. And in, and, and in fact, his hand actually gets stuck inside and he pulls his, maybe not that, but the, the, the fat folds over the blade and Ehud just leaves it there. And then this other extra detail, the only thing that comes out is not the sword, but his dung, right? It's, it's, he loses bodily control. And now Ehud is smart. He's very smart. He quickly makes his exit. But before he does so, in a, in, a, in a master stroke of brilliance, he locks the doors to Eglon's room behind him. Now, how does he do this? We were not sure. Was there a key in the door? We don't know. Was this planned or just quick thinking? We don't know. But either way, it's a master stroke of deception. Um, he concealed his plan from his fellow Israelites. He concealed the sword inside the fat of the body. He deceived the king and the attendants, and now he hides the dead king in a room, and he makes his escape. And for if you're Eglon's servants, things are really awkward. Because you're on the outside, and the door's locked, and your master, your king, is on the inside. And they're in a predicament. It's like, do we go in? I don't know. Should we go in? Well, if we go in and he doesn't want us in there, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. So let's just wait. What's taking him so long? Oh, well, he's probably on the toilet because you can smell something, right? So let's just wait. And they wait. 
And finally, he's like, I'm not going to go. We should go in. Should we go in? Okay, I'll go in if you go in. All right, we both go in. So they both open up the door. And what do they find? They find their king lying on the ground in his own mess, dead on the floor, where Ehud has taken advantage of this and escaped. And uh, it's interesting, a little detail. It says when he, when, when he leaves, it says he passed beyond the idols and escaped to, to Sareth. Like in, in Hebrew, like in the way the Old Testament is right, there's no wasted words. He passed beyond the idols. And it's interesting to hear about the idols again, because this is a land of dead gods. And the king of the dead gods has become a dead king. You become what you worship. So Ehud, what does he do? He heads back to Sarah. We're not sure where this place is. Somewhere just north of Jerusalem, we think. And he blasts his trumpet. And he makes a public announcement that he was their leader. Now, we're not sure what people thought about this. Maybe word had gotten out that Ehud had, you know, killed the king. We don't know. And some of them were like, wasn't he the guy that we had bring the tribute, but now he's king? Now he's saying, come on, let's fight? So anyhow, word spreads, must have spread, and then it says, the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And Ehud cries, and if, when you think about him saying this, think about when, he, when, he's, uh, when he's making this cry. It says this, it says, um, he says, follow after me. Okay, when you imagine this, when he's saying to the, imagine, imagine Theoden on, you know, in, in, in the siege of Gondor, ready to rescue. You guys know what I'm talking about? Lord of the Rings, right? So Theoden has this big speech. So imagine Ehud, you know, just crying out, going, you know, follow after me. So kind of in a Scottish, poor Scottish accent. He says, for the Lord has given the enemies of the Moabites into your hands. And everyone's like, huzzah! And they all go attack. Now, interesting thing. They go to attack the Moabites. Where are their allies? Where are the uh, Ammonites and the Amalekites? And they kind of like, oh, we're out of here. Uh, they take off. And it says, what happens? It says they go after them. The Moabites are alone. They're defeated. And we read that the Israelites, quote, went down after them and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. They blocked them off. And did not allow anyone to pass over. Pass over. The Moabites that day were utterly defeated. Now one more detail. And it's easy to miss. Look at this. Look at this. Sorry, I shouldn't be taking so much delight in such a violent story. Um, okay, look at verse 29. This is really interesting. And it says, and they killed at that time about 10,000 10, of the Moabites. Then what does it say next? All of them are what? Vigorous and strong, or strong and able-bodied, we read. Now, the word that's used to describe strong and able-bodied is actually a word to, de to describe something else. It's a word to describe fat. And so... What may be the point, and I think this is the point, is that the Moabites would have been eating all the tribute from the Israelites, eating all the food that's being sent to them all for 18 years, all this food. The Moabites themselves, the soldiers, had grown so fat 
that they couldn't outrun the Israelites and they died. They had been stripped of the dignity the same way their king had. And so what happens as a result? It says the land had rest for 80 years. What a story. Any questions before we kind of draw some, some lessons from Ehud? It's a great story. And the stories, the stories are so, so colorful. Well, I think there's some lessons that we can draw from Ehud the left-handed. Uh, here's one, one lesson. I think one of the lessons is this, is that tyrants are only tyrants until they're confronted by God. There's dark humor that runs through the story. But uh, to be honest, there's nothing really funny about Eglon from the get-go at the beginning. Eglon, he conquers Israel, takes possession of the land, and demands tribute from them. He enslaves them for 18 years. And so Eglon was the tyrant who knew how to subjugate a defeated nation. For 18 long years, Israel was humiliated, forced to give them tribute year after year. And so long as this tyrant remained powerful, not much could be done. But here's the thing. You think about all the tyrants in history. Tyrants become a joke when they're confronted by the power of God. I've shared this story before, but um, it's such a good story. That um, Malcolm Muggeridge, who is a a journalist uh, from the BBC, and uh, he tells the story of um, this person who was sent on a mission to the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And the mission was to go determine the state of the church in the 1970s in the Soviet Union. And the guy comes back and he says, and this is his report, he says, the state of the church, state of the church, it's a mess. The church is nothing. He goes, I, I went there, I went there. And do you know all I saw? All I saw was a bunch of little old ladies praying. Now, Muggers tells this story after 1989 when the statues of Stalin lay in dust and the statues of of Lenin had been knocked over and where the Soviet Union had crashed in in a blink of an eye. And Muggeridge says these words, he goes, oh, beware of little old ladies praying where they can bring down empires. And that the biggest tyrant when confronted by the power of God stands no chance. I mean, think about it. I mean, what... Here you have a guy like Eglon, so powerful, it becomes a joke when he's confronted by God. And all their fear and all their power and all their, it all dissipates in the face of God. So much power, so much swagger was all brought down by an 18-inch sword by a left-handed man. And we come across in the Psalms, these pictures, right? I love Psalm 73. You guys know Psalm 73? I love that that psalm. It's one of my favorite psalms because it begins like this. It says, surely God is good to Israel. I know the right theology, but it says this. But for me, I'd almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
They have no worries. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to men. It basically says that, you know, these people, they, 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 they kind of strut and they, they, they pay no attention to God and they seem to have it all together. And here I am trying to follow the ways of Jesus or following the ways of God and, and, and I'm not, you know, my life is not working out the same way. And then at the very end, the psalm it's really cool he goes this was so oppressive to me until i entered the sanctuary of god and i discerned their final destiny and he says when, when god peels it back and he realizes he realized that these great tyrants all this arrogance and all this pride will come crumbling down like that the psalm 126 when the lord restored the fortunes of zion we were like those are dreamed and our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy in psalm 2 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us and says these words these are haunting he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Tyrants are only tyrants until they're confronted by the power of God. I think that's one of the things. Second thing is this, is the, is the humorous absurdity of tyrants. You know, these tyrants that's, that, that portray themselves as all-powerful. And if you, it's kind of interesting if you read in the ancient Near East some kings and the way they describe their names, they don't just say, hey, I'm Bob the king. It's I'm Bob the, you know, the magnificent, the wonderful, the all, omnipresent, all-powerful. You know, they would elevate themselves. And that's the story of tyrants throughout history. They elevate themselves and they think that they're, they're just shy of being a god. Do you guys remember, you probably some of you would remember this person. Does anybody remember uh, a woman named Shirley MacLaine? Yeah, okay. You guys remember, yeah. Well, Shirley, she's kind of into some new age stuff and, uh, and there's, this, there's, this, um, there's this time where she kind of, I think she was, maybe some of you I know the story better than I do, where she's standing on the beach and she's just filled with this sense because she, she was always teaching that, you know, God is not out there, but God is in us. We have God. We are like little gods. And she stands on, on the beach and her arms are open and she says, and she cries out. She goes, I am God, right? And I forget who was describing it. And, uh, and uh, the description is, can you imagine God looking down? at this teeny tiny itty bitty little person on the beach and hearing these tiny itsy bitsy tiny words going, I am God. Like, and just what a joke that is. And, and we see this all throughout history. We see tyrants that they set themselves up as gods. You know, the, the, um, the earliest Roman emperors, right? They would make, if you wanted to, uh, to shop and buy food, you had to say these words, Kaiser et Curious, Caesar is Lord, right? Well, that's why I think that that Psalm, Psalm 2, is, is so powerful. You know, Psalm 2, the one we just read, it's quoted four times in the New Testament. And it talks about Jesus as God's anointed one, who wins the battle over evil. And if you think about it, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, 
If you were a disciple, when you see your master crucified, that would have been terrifying, right? It would have seen that the Roman Empire had won. That the Roman emperor maybe was as powerful as he thought he was. And yet on the third day with Jesus' resurrection, all those things, all the power of the Roman Empire, all the swagger and all the, all the confidence, all that disappears. Disappears. And the fact is that, uh, I heard one guy say this once, we live in a world today where we name our children after poor fishermen that followed Jesus. James, John, Peter. And we name our dogs after the emperors. Nero, Caesar, right? Tells you something about God's upside down kingdom. Now, Ehud was no Jesus. His methods were different than Jesus. Ehud was sneaky and devious. Jesus was without guile. Ehud was a man of violence. Jesus is a prince of peace. That said, there are some similarities between Ehud and Jesus. So let's get your th thinking caps on. What are, from the story that you read, what are some similarities between Ehud and Jesus? Let me hear from you. See what you got. I didn't put it in your notes, so don't look in your notes. Haha, <laughs> I took it out. <laughs> what are some similarities? Try, uh, well, no, Ehud is Benjaminite, right? From the tribe of Benjamin, and Jesus would be from, from Judah, right? Yeah. They're both not much to look at. Wow, that's good. They, they both, yeah, we're not impressive looking. Yeah, very good. Was Jesus left-handed? We don't know. <laughs> I like to think he was. <laughs> what else? I mean, yeah, they both rescued the people. Yeah, they both rescued their people. Very good. What do you guys think? He was a messenger. They're both messengers, yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, they're both messengers, yeah. Anything else? Jesus was like a lamb. Yeah, lamb to the slaughter in Ehud. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, the parallel there would be they're both from places that were not that impressive, right? Ehud was a Benjaminite. And Jesus was, I mean, a he's from Nazareth, right? Nazareth. What good could possibly come out of Nazareth? Mm -hmm. Okay. What else? Uh, they both used a double-edged sword. It's just Ehud's was uh, literal, and Jesus's is figurative. Oh, well done, Jeremy. <laughs> good job. Good. They both had a message, yeah? They both operate alone in some ways, right? There's, a, there's an aloneness to them. Um, how about, how about um, even the people closest to them essentially had no idea what was, uh, what was going on? Oh, well done, Jerry. I, I didn't even have that on my list. That's really good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. They both have E in their name. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> that's good they both um they both achieved rest for god's people 
And they both made a spectacle of the evil powers and exposed the fact that the emperor has no clothes. Now you think of Colossians chapter 2. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, uh, by triumphing over them in him. Barry Webb, again, he says, puts it this way. He says, the tyrants of this world do have real power. They may be used by God to discipline his people, as Eglon was, but they do not have absolute power, and their days are numbered. Their assumption is that they are invincible, and they'll never be called to account for their actions. It's absurd. For it is God, not they, who rules the world and determines the fate of his people. It's good. And so there is some laughter in this story. I mean, it is dark humor. Um, but there's something humorous about um, people who's, who set themselves up as, 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 as tyrants, as, 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 as a dominant one, and really they're not. You know, I was thinking about this this week, and I'm not sure if this will make sense. I was, I was going to kind of go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but... Um, We live in a world today where there's a lot of forces that are pushing up against the church. Would you agree? Um, there's a lot of people that say, you know, God doesn't exist, that the church is a joke, that what you see is what you get, that's all there is. We may as well live our lives, eat, drink, and be merry without a care for anything else. And Sometimes when we're in this situation, especially the pressure that the church is experiencing, around the world especially, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. And one of the things that we need to maintain as followers of Jesus Christ is this, and it's probably not something you'd think of, but one of the things we need to maintain is a sense of humor. There's a great line by um, George MacDonald. He's a 19th century uh, novelist. And he says this, he says, um, he says this about humanity. He says, you know, we've, we've grown old. We've grown old. We're so serious. He says, we have grown old and our heavenly father is younger than we. Isn't that interesting? And George MacDonald, he says, he, says he, he wants his readers at one point, he says he wants his readers to know what he calls the wonderful joke of God's love. And he says, yes, life can be tragic. And we've done tragic things. We've hurt people. We've been hurt by people. We've been disappointed. Yes. And we've and we experienced depression, discouragement, and we can get down on ourselves. But here's, and this is what he says. This is a joke of love. That in, in spite of all that you've done or in spite of all that's being done to you, you are still deeply loved by the one who matters. You're still loved by God and nothing you have done or would ever do will ever change how God feels about you. He, even while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Everything will turn out all right in the end. What a wonderful surprise. Mankind hides in the darkness, 
even grows to love it because he fears rejection. He, he believes that if anyone saw what he was really like, they would turn and run from him. Yet God does see and he cares. And he's drawing us out of ourselves into his divine love. And the sadness is that we don't get the divine joke. And he says there's an ancient tradition that April Fool's Day falls very close to Easter. And uh, because April Fool's Day has its origins in the gospel story. He says, because there's the thought that Satan thought he had defeated God. He had defeated God's plan by having Jesus crucified. Friday looked dark and dismal. Joy had been stolen. Hearts were broken. But wait, Sunday is coming. On that first Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, defeated death and hell, and brought us, as McDonald said, to at-one-ment, atonement with God. And so in some traditions to this day, April Fool's Day is a time to celebrate the joke God played upon the devil. And it's our ability to see and embrace a joke and experience joy unspeakable that brings us to our salvation. And he says it's the lack of humor in the Christian life with a lack of understanding the serious importance of humor as a product of salvation, McDonald saw as a lack of spiritual development. He says humor is a serious business of life. And I, I forget who said it, but I think, I think it must have been Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. He talks, he says, he never trusts a Christian with no sense of humor. And it's funny, I... I I read, uh, I've read, you know, lots of Puritans, lots of Christian writers over, these, uh, over the years. Um, the Puritans, I, I like the Puritans, but some of the times the Puritans, well, they're more serious than God. And uh, the people that resonate with me, well, think about it in your own life. The people, when you see their Christian life, there has to be a bit of humor. There has to be a bit of joy to the way they, there has to be a lightness to the way they live their Christian life. Maybe I'm just, maybe that's just my experience, but that, that's what draws me. People that I want to be like, and I see the way they live out their Christian life, there's a lightness to them, and there's also a bit of humor to it. Anyhow, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a, a side, side thought, but it was on my mind this week, so hey, I lay it out. Here's the last thing, and, and we touched on this earlier, and that's the creativity of God. Again, there's a blandness to sin. Evil doesn't need to be creative. You know, the, the evil one's strategy, the evil one doesn't need to be creative because the old boring strategies work so well, right? But God is always creative. Look at Ehud compared to Othniel. Look at Ehud in comparison to this guy that comes after, this guy named uh, Shamgar, the son of Adnath, who killed 600 of the Philistine with an ox goad. <laughs> you can Google ox goad later on. And he saves Israel. And it shows us that God is always creative in terms of how he rescues us. He's an artist. And God is a God of surprises. That's why theology, theology is fun. Right, Kevin? Theology is fun. Yes, I knew you would agree. And the last point is this, is God uses those whom the world views as useless. God uses those that the world views as useless. That's what I like about Ehud. He's a remarkable figure. He's the fellow who's seen as pretty useless. I mean, if you can't use your right hand, you literally have no dexterity. 
And in a world where the right hand refers to strength, Ehud was a man who across the board seemed weak and impotent. His own people, here's the thing, his own people don't even recognize his usefulness. The Moabites only see his weakness. But God uses the useless and he empowers the weak to carry out his divine purposes. Which I find encouraging. Because how many of you have ever felt useless? Anybody ever feel useless? Well, just me, I guess. Okay, me and, okay, me and Michael. <laughs> oh, I saw a couple of hands go up there. Okay, there's yeah, like four of us. All right. Um, do you ever feel weak? Do you ever feel like um, your life doesn't make much of a difference? Well, you're in the perfect position to be used by God. Because what, what, uh, what does Paul say? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? We'll, we'll close. What's that? When I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Here we go. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Right? God uses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I think that's a perfect picture of our friend um, Ehud. And so that's Ehud in a nutshell. Um, any questions? What time are we here? Oh, good time. Any questions, comments? Is Ehud found anywhere else? I don't think so. I don't think so. I could find out. <laughs> um, I think he's mentioned in First Chronicles, I think. That's about it. Yeah. Did Satan know that Jesus was going to rise on Sunday? I don't think so. I don't because I don't he's not omniscient. Yeah. And that picture of, uh, of God tricking the devil is, um, is an early understanding of the atonement. And I, you find it quite a bit until you get a guy named Anselm comes, comes along. But it's that, it's that picture of, of God tricking the devil. What, what story captures that quite well? 
It's a popular story. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When C.S. Lewis writes The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what happens is the, the witch kills Aslan, right? Because Aslan substitutes himself for Edmund. It should have, Edmund should have died. Aslan kills himself because that's just. But what she didn't know was a deeper magic. And, uh, and so in a, in a sense, she, she's, she's fooled. And so Lewis is drawing from this, old, this, this uh, early understanding of the atonement. Yeah. Any other comments, questions? All right. Well, well done, everyone. Brian, do you have a question? I can see you looking. No? That's good. All right, well, let me... Uh, the sarcasm What's that? Humor? No, you look like you had a question. Well, if, if sarcasm, I'm wondering if that counts as humor that we're supposed to have as Christians. I sure hope it does, because I have lots of it. <laughs> and I know we share that, too. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Next week, we are going to be carrying on with a great story of Deborah and Barack. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's what we're going to be looking at next week. So uh, let me close in prayer. And if you have questions during the week, just drop me a line. That would be good too. But uh, we'll, go, we'll pray and then we'll go from here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for guys like Ehud um, who are full of flaws. And yet you use them to deliver your people. You use them to carry out your purposes. And we find that comforting because we are full of flaws. We are full of all sorts of weaknesses. Yet you and your grace use what is weak to shame the strong. Uh, you use what seems useless to carry out your purposes. And you're always doing this. You're always doing this. And you're so creative in all that you do. Lord, help us this week, um, rather than to lament our weaknesses, See how you use our weaknesses for your, for your glory. Lord, we put ourselves at your disposal. Uh, we pray that you would use us uh, maybe to speak an apt word into a friend's life, to speak uh, uh, words of truth and correction even into a friend's life. Help us to be instruments of your peace. Help us to be willing to be used by you in whatever way you, you, you want us to be used. Thank you for your word. We pray that you continue to speak your word and your truth into our hearts and that we be transformed from the inside out by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, cyber people, I'm going to say goodbye. Thanks, See David. you later. Thank you. Right, you're Thank welcome. You. You're welcome. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.